I'm Al Phil Reese, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash Sound. I'm here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Wexler studio today, joined by Adrian Rafel, author of What Was It For? Rescue Press 2017, winner of the Rescue Press Black Box Poetry Prize and the chapbook But What Will We Do? I love your titles. <laughs> Seattle Review 2016, whose work has also appeared in such publications as The New Yorker Online, Poetry, The New Republic, Paris Review Daily, Lana Turner Journal, born in New Jersey, raised in Vermont, holds an MFA from the Iowa Writers Workshop, I've heard of that, and a PhD from Harvard, I've heard of that too, who teaches in the Princeton Writing Program and whose current project is a book about crossword puzzles. So excited about that. And by Julia Block, director of the Creative Writing Program here at the University of Pennsylvania, associate at the Bard College Institute for Writing and Thinking, editor of Jackatoo Magazine, and recipient of a Pew Fellowship in the Arts, whose scholarship has been published in the Journal of Modern Literature, Tulsa Studies in Women's Literature, Teaching Modernist Women's Literature, and elsewhere, and who is author of three books of poetry, including Letters to Kelly Clarkson, a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award, The Sacramento Desire, forthcoming from Sidebrow Books, and the one that I forgot to mention... Valley Fever. Valley Fever, one of my favorites. And also by Jennifer Firestone, author of five books of poetry and four chapbooks, including Story, Ugly Duckling Press, forthcoming. Ten, Blaze Vox, also forthcoming. Gates and Fields, Belladonna Collaborative, Swimming Pool, Double Cross Press, and others, who is collaborating with Marcella Durant on a book about feminist avant-garde poetics, who won the 2014 Marsh Hawk Press Robert Creeley Memorial Prize, who is on the faculty at the New School's Eugene Lang College and is also the director of the New School's Academic Fellows Pedagogy Program. Jennifer, welcome. Thanks for coming all this way. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So this is your first time at the Writer's House? It is. It and is. have you any impressions? This is kind of a leading question. It's very cozy. I made myself a very nice cup of peppermint tea. There you go. And, um, and there's a, a wonderful couch that I sunk into. The brown leather or the green velvet? Yes, the brown leather was amazing. Yeah, that's really Well, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. Thanks for And we've seen each other in other contexts, but not here. So that's really cool. Adrian, thank you. Thank you so much. For schlepping down from Princeton. (laughs) Yeah, schlep. Do you have a sentence about the crossword puzzle book? Is there there a short little elevator pitch? Yeah, what's it like to be in the mind of a crossword puzzle? Wow, you did it. Most people don't actually do just a sentence. That's really funny. I've been working on that, that sentence for you a little You got while. it. Yeah. Fascinating. And Julia Block, it is always a great pleasure to see you. Great to see you. Yeah, thanks. So the four of us have gathered here today to talk about Maggie Nelson's Bluets, B-L-U-E-T-S. 
This book of 240 numbered prose poem propositions was published by Wave Books in 2009. So we're going to focus on 11 sections, 11 propositions, those numbered 222 through 232. And these appear on pages 89 to 93 in the Wave edition. Nelson's pen sound page includes several recordings of readings in which she reads from this work. The recording we'll play here is from a reading she gave at Boise State University in Idaho on April 26, 2013. So here now is Maggie Nelson reading from Bluettes. 222. In January 2002, camping in the Dry Tortugas on an island which is essentially an abandoned fort 90 miles north of Cuba, flipping through a copy of Nature magazine. I read that the color of the universe, whatever this might mean, and here I gather it means the result of a survey of the spectrum of light emitted by 200,000 galaxies, has finally been deduced. The color of the universe, this article says, is pale turquoise. Of course, I think, looking out wistfully over the glittering gulf, I knew it all along. The heart of the world is blue. 2.23. A few months later back at home, I read somewhere else that this result was an error due to a computer glitch. The real color of the universe, the new article says, is light beige. 2.24. Recently I found out that Les Bleuets can translate as cornflowers. Now you might think I would have known this all along, as I have been calling this book Bluettes, mispronounced, for years. But somehow, if you're saying Bluettes, I guess you're saying it right, but, or Bluet, but I say Bluettes like, like majorettes or something. Um, but somehow I had only ever heard it meant a small blue flower with a yellow center that grows abundantly in the countryside of France, so I thought I'd never seen it. 2.25. Shortly after finding out about the bluettes, I have a dream in which I am sent an abundance of cornflowers. In this dream, it is perfectly all right that that is their name. They do not need to be bluettes any longer. They are American, they're shaggy, they're wild, they're strong. They don't signify romance. They were sent by no one in celebration of nothing, and I had known them all along. 226. As I collected blues for this project in folders and boxes and notebooks and memory, I imagined I would create a blue tome, an encyclopedic compendium of blue observations, thoughts, and facts. But as I lay out my collection now, what strikes me most is its anemia, an anemia that seems to stand in direct proportion to my zeal. I thought I had collected enough blue to build a mountain, albeit one of detritus. But it seems to me now as if I have stumbled upon a pile of thin blue gels scattered on the stage long after the show has come and gone, the set striped. 227. Perhaps this is as it should be. Wittgenstein's Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus, the first and only book of philosophy he published in his lifetime, clocks in at 60 pages, and it offers a grand total of seven propositions. As to the shortness of this book, I am awfully sorry for it, but what can I do? Wittgenstein wrote his translator. If you were to squeeze me like a lemon, he wrote, you would get nothing more out of me. 228. My injured friend is now able to write letters via voice recognition software to keep her friends abreast of changes in her condition, of which there have been many. My life can change. My life does change, she asserts, and it has, and it does, often in astonishing ways. Nonetheless, near the end of these letters, she usually includes a short paragraph that acknowledges her ongoing physical pain and her intense grief for all she has lost, a grief she describes as bottomless. 
This is a quote from her letter. If I did not write of the difficulties under which I labor, I would fear to be misrepresenting the grinding reality of quadriplegia and spinal cord injury. So here it is, she writes, the paragraph that roundly asserts, I continue to suffer. 229, I am writing all of this down in blue ink so as to remember that all words, and not just some, are written in water. 2.30, hold up in the North Country for the month of May, a May which saw but four days of sunshine. The rest of the month was solid gray, drizzling or pouring rain, rendering everything green, rushing and verdant, in short, a nightmare. Each day I took long walks in my yellow poncho looking for blue, for any blue thing. I found only tarps, always tarps, pinned over stacks of firewood, a few blue recycling containers kicked over in the streets, a grayish-blue mailbox here and there. I came back to my dark chamber each night, empty-eyed, empty-handed, as if I had been panning fruitlessly for gold all day in a cold river. Stop working against the world, I counseled myself. Love the one you're with. Love the color green. But I did not love the green, nor did I want to have to love it or pretend to love it. The most I can say is that I abided it. 231, that month I touched myself every night in my narrow bed and came, thinking of you, knowing all the while I was planting the seeds of a fresh disaster. The disaster did not come then, but it did come later. Though six days may smoothly run, the seventh will bring blue devils or a dun rope rhyme. The most I can say is that this time I learned my lesson. I stopped hoping. 232, perhaps in time I will also stop missing you. Let's start with 226. This is a proposition or a set of sentences where Maggie Nelson gives us a hint about her process, about how she went about the project. So can we say what what we learn? Um, Adrian, what do, what do we learn about the process? Well, something that strikes me in this passage as a proposition or poem or whatever block we're going to we're going to call the blocks is in all of them is the uh, we learn about what she claims her process was or wants her process to have been this is like a general um statement about the sort of blurring of fact and fiction and imagination and what it, and when things happen in time so she says She's collecting blues in an active way, but earlier in other propositions, blues come to her passively. Um, she wants to have this sort of world of blue, but finds it um, lacking, which seems as though she could collect an ocean full of blues and it would just be a drop in the bucket, right? What does collection mean? What does the word collection mean, Julia, in this context? It means preserving. Um, it could be hoarding. It could be, you know, if, when you collect or you, or even if you hoard, you're often not paying super close attention to the quote unquote real value of things. Um, or you might have a misconception of the value of things. Um, I, what I'm really taken by is the idea of collecting in memory. So it's like not collecting. She, she doesn't write, I collected memories. She says, I collected blues in memory, mm. which I think is really cool. <laughs> um, and I also love, I love the complicated uh, metaphor that the that the block, to take Adrian's word, ends with. The idea that the this what we're left with is a pile of thin blue gels on a 
left on a stage that's been striked or struck, I guess. It sure should be struck. I love the way I think it should be struck, but I, but I like striked. Picking up on Adrian's um, idea, which I think is so true, that you get this doubleness here on one hand. It's very process-oriented, very organized, but it's also very slippery and unclear. So Jennifer folders, boxes, notebooks, that we all know. And then we get, as Julia said, memory. And then fa you lay out the collection. So, you know, this is what we do when we write books, right? We, got, we open up all the folders and boxes and we put it on the floor, we put it on the table. And what strikes her most is it's anemia. Yeah. The heck does she mean by that? Oh, it's sad. I mean, and I also, it's familiar to me. I mean, I think sometimes the collecting is um, not, it's like the wrong track when really the meaning that we're looking for might not be in, I think she says at one point, like how much, how many blue things might I have? There's not meaning in the mass. Um, so there's this this questioning of one's process. I mean, I, I do connect it a lot um, out to writing a book. And um, you're familiar with this. I'm very familiar with um, going down one track in in a really obsessive way. I mean, to me, this is about obsessive thinking that we all do. And um, realizing as you maybe have a moment of like uh, distance that you can look at what you're doing in your process, that it's just, it's sad. It's, it, it, it's, there's a little bit of a loss or death. Um, um, it's not, it's not thriving. Adrian, I have a crazy question that follows <laughs> from what Jennifer just said for you. Um, if the, if the color of the universe is blue, then doing this work would seem to be really efficacious because you're exploring the color of the universe. I mean, it seems very relevant. But it turns out that the color of the universe is not blue. Is there a difference? That is to say, obsessive collecting of blue and all the exhaustion that goes with it, and it turns out not to be the world. I don't know. What do you think of that whole thing about it turning out not to be the color of the universe? Um, throughout this, I remember listening to, it must have been a radio lab or something, talking about um, the sky, the color of the sky as blue. And actually, there's not, it's not really blue. It's, or there's some like, there's some like trick with actually, like when you say, why is the sky blue? It's actually an extremely complicated question because I'm not going to get the science precisely right. But I think the effect is right where it's actually like, it's not really blue. It's just like the effect of different things reflecting from it. So maybe that's kind of the same thing here so maybe we get actually in collecting all this blue um al you're suggesting that it, well it's apocalyptic and hopeless actually maybe it's restorative if we collect enough blue and amass enough blue we can reflect it back oh, up restore and, the color of the universe yeah exactly oh, that's so interesting julia start us off let's riff on blue blues bluettes i mean the whole book really is yeah about the blues in a way, right? Well, I would say feeling blue is definitely present here. I don't, I don't hear music here. I don't hear the yeah. I didn't mean the blues. music of I the blues, blue. yeah, but I right. hear yeah. mood certainly, moody blues, um, feeling blue, feeling loss. Um, there's there's also a, literally a depression here. There's a there's a kind of an affective, you know, mushing down of of feeling and awareness and the speaker we hear from we hear from this speaker who's at times kind of just moving through the day or moving through life without a lot of 
uh, rippling, you know, differentiation and experience. So to me, that feels um, also blue in terms of mood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just I want to also um, go back to when she learns that the universe is in fact not blue, and then the next proposition says that it's beige, and I light beige, light beige, How which boring. to me is really funny, you know. And I think she's I think she's really funny throughout the whole text um, because even. Um, even sonically, right? There's such a difference between bluettes, or however you say it, and beige, right? And then um, to think about um, what beige represents, I think of beige pants, you know, that men, some men tend to wear, or um, a kind of a non-committal color. Hmm. Beige also makes me think of, inst- I think of the phrase institutional beige. We often, yes, hear about, yeah. we often hear the word beige associated with institutions, with corporations. And so I, I like um, your reading of, of what it means to speak out against that. Um, I also wonder if it has anything to do with whiteness. Why would someone organize a book-length prose poem using numbered propositions. What are some possibilities there? It allows you to do a lot of different things. It allows you to play with modular form, but create tensions and connections between the disparate parts. It's kind of serial and kind of not. It's kind of narrative and kind of not. The The numbers have this baked-in sense of order, but the poems themselves get to mess with that order. In our among our eleven, can can somebody identify transition, non-transition, disjunction? I mean, there are a couple that follow right from each other, and then there are others that don't. Well, there's the I, f- I found out this about Le Bleuet, and then I found out this about cornflowers, or I actually I have a dream in which I am sent an abundance of cornflowers. Mm-hmm. So that's like two experiences that get connected. Um, that get connected conceptually, but also by just by virtue of being being in sequential numbers. But then you get the non sequitur of the long, quite powerful two twenty eight about her injured friend, followed by this lovely single sentence. I am writing all this down in blue ink, so as to remember that all words, not just some, are written in water. Yeah, and of course, all this could refer to these poems, or it could refer to the friend's letter. This this friend could be the I in that moment. And Wittgenstein gets mentioned in Hour 11. It's one of the traditions she's in direct conversation with is Wittgenstein's Tratatus is written in these prop- numbered propositions that um, his are more, generally more um, linked um to each other logically than hers are because he's writing um, in a logical philosophy. But she's, uh, I think what you're saying about the numbers providing kind of an order baked in, she's also allowing, very much allowing the um, Wittgenstein's use of the numbers to like riff with and against her sense of order and logic. And I mean, it's interesting because um, it does provide order and it does provide, I think, maybe a certain momentum because I imagine this as one big prose block and I think we lose quite a lot. So it's that 
paradox, those contrasting propositions. But it's the, I mean, I, I don't know. I was having this association of the, like, the way that um, Alice Notley in Descent of Alette uses quotes and how that becomes, like, this rhythm. So in some ways, that forms, like, the rhythm for me. What's poetic about numbered propositions? I mean, I think that, you know, Wittgenstein's, not so much the Tractatus, but more his later work, the Philosophical Investigations. Lately, in the last couple of decades, poetry critics and poetry theorists have thought of that as very poetic. It allows you to play with suspended ideas, um, but also movement and momentum, I think. I think Jennifer used the word momentum. And I love the example of Alice Notley and another writer I think of who plays with numbers is Banu Koppel, who has more nested numbers. So in a book like Humanimal, we'll have, you know, uh, Roman numerals, I think, um, and capital letters and, and then lowercase Roman numerals underneath them. So playing with uh, scientific vocabulary, I guess, or orthography, I'm not sure what you would call it. But again, it's it's not it's not quite right as a scientific discourse. It's more poetic. It's more exploiting these forms and these tools in order to raise the poem to the level of essay or argument. And also, as we've um, this is echoing what we've been saying throughout, but the numbers provide a rhythm and a skeleton and a sense of an order, so that anything can kind of dance across them. And the numbers allow for this generous um, kind of intuitive, either intuitive um, or, you know, other kinds of linking actions. So like, and it allows for some like interesting sound motion, interesting sort of color descriptions that like link across in various ways. And the numbers provide a grounding mechanism so that other like forms can happen on top or of or pseudo grounding. Sure, that is, they they create the impression yeah. of of in the way that the Logico Philosophicus Tractatus does. Uh, you know, some of the things that Wittgenstein says are just nuts, <laughs> right? But but it's this is uh, proposition six point one six. When you say six point one six, you are creating the impression of precise logical momentum. I wonder if. Zach and Leah in the booth would play 231 and 232 for us. There you have 232 follows directly from 231. This is where she's feeling blue. She's missing a lover, it seems. Um, but I want to hear her, and I would love to hear your response to, she says, after I stopped hoping, she says 232, and then she says this thing. And I, let's see if we can get the effect. 231, that month I touched myself every night in my narrow bed and came thinking of you, knowing all the while I was planting the seeds of a fresh disaster. The disaster did not come then, but it did come later. Though six days may smoothly run, the seventh will bring blue devils or a dun rope rhyme. The most I can say is that this time I learned my lesson. I stopped hoping. 232, perhaps in time I will also stop missing you. What is the poetic effect of 232 in the middle of that? <laughs> a number. Feels like a volta almost. I mean, it feels feels like a... It's one line. It's surrounded by all this space. It's a 
it's a it's a very um, affective, um, very kind of confessional moment after we get this Byron quote. There's also a way in which the numbers are a little like Pantone shades, like each number designates a very, very specific different kind of blue. So if you were having, um, if you were trying to do a gradient of all the bluettes in using like very subtle shifts of blue, maybe, um, I don't know, that could be a cool visual arts project for somebody, but like, but it makes 232 a slightly different color tone than 231 for me it's interesting because i agree that there there's romance here and there's missing um a beloved but then when i hear that number i'm jolted out of that space and i'm reminded this is a whatever we call this a poem essay project that was organized in a particular way um this is artifice. And so um, it prevents me from flattening or converging this idea of the speaker um, speaking from confession or as a memoir, and instead makes me think of it as these bluets, these disparate pieces. That's really great. Um, it also marks time. When you hear 232, you think, well, okay, we've now heard two, 231 of these, and we're on to the next one. And it turns out that if we didn't have those numbers and we had this maybe lineated in poetry, we would be doing a close reading of the second to last sentence of 231. The most I can say is that this time I learned my lesson. And then 232, perhaps in time. 232 really makes it, uh, it gets you to focus on that um, boundary making, on that numerical forward motion and you forget that the turn is away from the person she miss, misses and time actually changes here so in 231 she's self-pleasuring thinking of him in 232 she's kind of looking forward to not needing that and it foregrounds process again and we we know from earlier in the book it's a it's a section we we um aren't specifically focusing on right now, but we know from earlier in the book, these propositions got shuffled around and reordered. So I can imagine this writer choosing later after these blocks were composed to put 232 after 231 or to put this line in the section for 232 and enjoying the juxtaposition, enjoying the what happens when you when you allow these modules to bump up against each other. Creates a new sense of revision and reordering when you have to actually renumber everything. Okay, I want to ask about flowers. So 224 and 225. Let's focus on that for a few minutes. She finds out that the uh, that the flower she's interested in is a cornflower. And she suggests that, in fact, it was well into the project before she figured that out. And then 225 is, I think, I'm going to just say, and you could probably disagree with me, that, you know, it's... She's thinking about flowers in the art tradition and specifically maybe in the poetry or literary tradition. Um, they're American. They're shaggy. They're wild. They're strong. They do not signify romance. They were sent by no one in celebration of nothing. <laughs> in other words, these are not, this is not the rose 
of 19th century love poetry or even the rose of HD dismissing 19th century. This is, <laughs> these are not even that. What are they? What's she saying about flowers? It's so odd to me that they're American. It's not odd in that we know Maggie Nelson is interested in William Carlos Williams. And so I couldn't help but read that alongside what Williams says about the asphodel, which is this kind of deeply burdened flower because it has all of this mythological significance. But with the asphodel and with the cornflower, we get two flowers that were actually imported to the United States, but they're read as wild and American here by two poets. And so I, I think that's an interesting contradiction. Yeah, and also the rose is obsolete, I guess, earlier. And then we get also earlier in the career. That's this right. is another way of talking about a different kind of flower. Adrian? And also thinking well, thinking about Williams going back to our conversation on numbers too, and spring and all is playing um in that book so much with numbered sections and it and and that book starts with the by the road to the hospital, like the flower, the like sort of weedy flower growing up there. Um what I also love about um, the flowers is in two thirty, where she her description she sort of turns herself into this cornflower in a way. She's got her yellow poncho looking for blue, and the blue tarp spread out, so she kind of becomes the shaggy cornflower of the book, which I think is just um, I think is really lovely. <laughs> That's so amazing. I love that. Um, I also just bring it back to the, to me. Um, the the cornflower becomes the beige. That's mm. that's um, not the pale turquoise. Um, it so, again sonically, um, uh, Le bleuet and cornflower. <laughs> I mean, you know. Uh, so and it's something that is around her all the time. What does she mean by uh, "I had known them all along"? At the end of 225. I guess them would be the cornflowers. Yeah. But what is what kind of statement is that? I mean, literally, it reminds me of how in dreams we take things for granted and we accept things very readily that in waking life might be bizarre or absurd or surreal. They do not signify romance. So maybe there's something there about, again, about stepping away from the romance that's mm -hmm. really at the heart of this book. Okay, so let's interpret the dream of 225. She has a dream in which she sent, meaning someone has sent her, an abundance of cornflowers. They were sent by no one in celebration of nothing. I just keep thinking it's about, or I was maybe hoping there was something about acceptance and um, looking at something difficult right in into its eyes right at this moment. And I got kind of caught up and then I forgot, oh, but it's a dream. And if I didn't, if I, you know, I'm not thinking this is, an, uh, this is a dream, 226 brings me right back to the collecting part. <laughs> Again, it doesn't stay in this, if, if you go with this reading, my reading of it being about acceptance and just engaging with what's right there, um, that that dissipates by 226. Yeah, and I think that it seems like I, I agree, Jennifer, that there's a connection between 225 and 226, the being sent this abundance of and then trying to organize and collect them. It feels like Emily Dickinson's herbarium too, you know, where she's uh, putting all these flowers really carefully into this notebook. Um 
But there's also, just to pick at the dream a little bit, it's weird that why would in a dream, like she sent the cornflowers, but how does she know that they're cornflowers and not blue A's? You know, like who's telling her in the dream? Is there a little card on them that says, hi, Maggie, here's some cornflowers? <laughs> you know, like why, what, what's, how, how do we know that the word cornflower is associated with this object rather than blue A or something else? Mm. And the fact that they don't signify romance, I, I was reading that earlier as a literary thing. But in fact, if in romance in the sort of plain sense of, you know, love and love connection, this is obviously a central issue. Apparently, cornflowers also means bachelor's button. Oh. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. And it's a weed. It's a weed that grows in cornfields. Oh, I was just going to say, I realized that even in my reading of this room, I was doing a thing which I think she's really playing with throughout too and it's a thing that often happens is you know is the eye in this whole book is it Maggie Nelson or is it a quote unquote Maggie Nelson or is it somebody uh, like who you know I think the to have a dream and to have somebody who's sort of enough of a person I mean, it's so personal and vivid and bodily throughout the book but to have a dream and to have a mind like that really just it makes me think too about you know who is sending them what did they signify but then who is the speaker who is receiving as well let's talk about the injured friend in 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 the 11 sections of propositions that we're talking about we only see this person once in 228 so this is a person who is now learning uh, quadriplegic and is now learning to use voice recognition software and is writing. So what's happening here? Well, I, I was thinking about this section, and um, in some way I think one of the purposes of this section in talking about this friend is for the speaker to possibly kind of check her own suffering or have a contrasted other perspective around suffering. And, um, you know, the whole section is concerned with the representation of suffering and pain and um, is trying to resist this flattening of what um, pain and suffering looks like and instead opening it up to the many contours. So I feel like this section does a lot of work to that effect. I almost wanted it to do more of that work, though. I, I, I wanted to get I wanted to know what would happen if we just got the paragraph in 228 without the framing mm. that we get from the speaker that we know from the other paragraphs or, or propositions. Um, seems to me that framing it and placing it in this way does something different. It, it, it habituates it to the textures of the book that surrounds it. It... it you know, basically, what if it were more Williams, Williams-like? Um, you know, what if it were a true collage of another voice of a of a of a letter in into this book? I am interested in the fear of misrepresentation that's quoted from the injured friend. It's the injured friend who says, "I need to write about pain because." If I don't, I would, I'm, not, I'm not constantly reminding my reader of the grinding reality. 
And that this follows from what you were just saying, because that we all we can think of is this speaker of the, the the person who's writing all these propositions, the Maggie Nelson figure, who is constantly talking about or often talking about her loss and her pain, right? So the misrepresentation is kind of an odd note that we have the injured friend writing about the fear of misrepresentation. And then, then, so here it is, the paragraph that Ranley asserts, I continue to suffer. Yeah, I mean, I, c- I compare it to the Byron quote in 231, which doesn't get any framing, doesn't get any unpacking. I mean, that's different, right? It's, it's reading Byron versus receiving a well, letter from your friend. A, it's different intimacy, but... It's also a blue item in one of the boxes or folders because it's just a blue quote. It's an object. But this is an object too, is it not? It is. I think that's a really interesting point. And I, I had a hard time a bit with um, this proposition and others that reference the friend and the framing part. Um, and I know in a way like one of the um, things that Nelson does is try to like lay bare um, possibly her own questions around ethics and intervention and, you know, how her obsession leaks in and grabs these, you know, maybe objectifies, if you want to go that far, these other people's lives and 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 turns them into things. Now I'm really <laughs> getting on her bad list, but, you know, so I, 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 I really like the idea, Julie, of just um, being bothered by that framing and what would it look like without, which would be another set of concerns, but, yeah. Well, we could talk about this work for a long time. I wonder if we would go around and everybody has a final thought, something you came today to want to say, but haven't had a chance to yet. So throw anything out, non sequitur. Adrian, you first? Sure. I also, we were talking at the very beginning, you know, what does blue mean? And I, maybe I just really love them, but I think of Nabokov's blues too, his, the blue butterflies that he was obsessed. And he figured out um, that the, like, a specific species was a specific species. And he was right long before DNA confirmed that he was correct about this endangered species of butterflies. So it fe- there's, and I just, um, I don't know. I just love this sort of um, obsession on a topic that is, you know, are Nabokov's butterflies a tangent for him or are they the thing that enables him to keep writing and thinking and being existing in the world? And it seems very related to her project of collecting and both like organizing, but also swirling everything into this world of blue. Wonderful. Thank you. Julia, final thought? I'm thinking about the last line of 2.30. The most I can say is that I abided it. So speaker talking about green there, but to abide means to tolerate or to dwell. So I'm thinking about this book and the form of the propositions again as a, as a kind of dwelling. And I think of dwelling as, you know, it's durational. It doesn't have a lot of variation in some ways. The variations might be quite subtle or kind of underground. And it's a it's an interesting approach to movement. Cool. Jennifer. Yes. I am thinking about um, one of the things that really compels me about this book is the speaker kind of letting you in at times to her own limitations and flawed thinking. Like we mentioned before, even 
not knowing and being this obsessive about something but not knowing how to pronounce it and saying that, which again creates a lot of humor, which I, I laugh quite a bit in the book. But also I think she's doing this thing where she's trying to give up some of that authorial power where you don't, as author, know all, even if you call it a project and put it in a book and title the book, <laughs> you know, the thing that you don't really know about, it's really makes yourself, uh, making herself vulnerable in a particular way. And I, um, I appreciate the capaciousness of that gesture. My final thought is about a proposition much earlier in the book. It's, it's Proposition 12. Uh, and please don't talk to me about things as they are being changed upon any blue guitar. Yeah, I thought of you when I read that. <laughs> Wallace Stevens, the man with the blue guitar. And then it goes on to say, what can be changed upon a blue guitar is not of interest here. So it's a wonderful rebuke of Wallace Stevens' claim to improvisational change, being able to take something imaginative like a blue guitar, you know, in the sort of Picasso mode, and uh, change things. Poetry changes the world, I guess, is the Stevensian formulation. So Maggie Nelson is standing up to that, doing something that's different from that modernism, and saying, I'm not interested in that kind of change. Then we get to our section. I'm a little, a little obsessed with the injured friend. Sorry. The injured friend is recording uh, her uh, changes the changes of her physical condition for her friends now that she can write. Uh, and she writes, my life can change, does change. And it's these changes mark the ongoing struggle of a spinal cord injury. And it's a little unfair to go from 228 back to 12. But in 12, there was this declaration that I'm not interested in change. I'm interested in, the, I guess, the world as it is. Not not green though, but blue, and I just I just fascinated by the by the comparison of that, and maybe in the end she is interested in change. Yeah, well, we like to end poem talk with a minute or two of gathering paradise, which is a chance for us to spread wide our narrow hands to gather a little something really poetically good, to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world. Jennifer, are you ready to do this? I am. Um, I want to recommend Lynn Higinian's latest book, Positions of the Sun. It's out um, from Belladonna Collaborative. Um, there are 26 interlocking, what she calls essays with characters that are um, uh, exploring the mid-2000s financial crisis. And um, they're just gorgeous. There's there, it actually connects a little bit with Bluettes. It's all about this um, kaleidoscopic pieces of uh, text, conversations, um, frenetic activity going on a lot around Berkeley. Um, and um, it it works towards looking at how these divergent pieces can um, form possibilities of resistance and protest. And it's just extremely moving. I think I, I have a quote here. Charles Bernstein said, it's the epic of our time. So, Great know, recommendation. Yeah. And say the name, say the title it's again. It's Positions of the Sun, Lynn Higinian. Fantastic. Thank you. Adrian. So I have... A couple of recommendations that are adjacent to the world of poetry. I That's just, fine. yeah, um, I just saw 
the most beautiful and astounding and moving exhibition of photography by Sally Mann, who's just a, um, it was a kind of retrospective and her portraits and her use and her use of really old techniques and kind of deliberately um, placing bits of dust or like spots or sprinkles onto the lenses to create what she calls comets and stars across and like using um, and sort of recuperating old techniques and recuperating um, accidents throughout her, these photographs um, were just so stunning to me. And I, um, I they, they, they're poetry. <laughs> ah, fantastic. Thank you. Julia Block. I have two. Gathers in Paradise. I have I have two books that I'm excited to read. Maybe on my subway ride home. One is Pet Sounds by Stephanie Young from Nightboat Books, and I've known Steph for a really long time, and I'm just really excited whenever there's new work out. And the other is a Counter Desecration, a glossary for writing within the Anthropocene, which is edited by Linda Russo and the late Martha Reed. And it's got a bunch of contributors who I really admire, including uh, Divya Victor, Fred Waugh, Kevin Verone from here in Philly. Um, I have an entry in it as well, but I haven't read the whole book yet, so I'm really excited to do so. It's a book that helps us you know, look at our language in the age of the Anthropocene, something that, that that maybe is one of the few things we can hang on to. Well, for my gathering paradise, I want to I want to recommend Wittgenstein, the aforementioned. Okay. The Tractatus Logical Philosophicus is not quite as crazy a read as the Philosophical Investigations, but I highly recommend it. And I think reading it alongside or even teaching it alongside this book would be just fantastic. Um, Marjorie Perloff has a book called Wittgenstein's Ladder in which she makes the case that we really need to think of Wittgenstein in the world of poetics. Pretty sort of at this point maybe an obvious argument, but it's it's well worth thinking through. And I also recommend um, some of the unpublished notebooks. I think one is called The Blue Notebook. <laughs> and there's like the blue and gray notebooks. Anyway, mm -hmm. one in The Blue Notebook, if you look hard, you will find a passage on pain in which Wittgenstein muses and riffs and investigates a toothache. Now, it's very hard to find the origin of the toothache. Because, you know, if I have, an append if I have appendicitis, they they're going to locate that site of the pain. But toothache, it's very mysterious sometimes. And it, it's really all about the radical subjectivity of toothache. It just is this fabulous, crazy, poetic riff about pain. So I highly recommend that. Yeah. Well, that's all the color of the universe we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk, be it, be it blue or beige. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Jennifer Firestone, Julia Block, and Adrian Rafel, and to Poem Talk's directors and engineers today, Zach Cardner and Leah Baxter, and to Poem Talk's editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner. And a shout-out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light, for their very generous support of Poem Talk. In our next episode, Mark Nowak, Meg Pendoli, and Husna Hashim join me to talk about six tankas written by three poets, Lorraine Garnett, Christine Yvette Lewis, and Davidson Garrett, who are members of Mark's Domestic Workers United Workshop. This is Al Filris, and I hope you'll join us for that. 
for another episode of Poem Talk. <laughs>